From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg and gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Lisa Henderson and her son, Brandon Henderson, are standing by with a remarkable story of addiction and recovery, supernatural recovery. They'll talk about that. Uh, the opioid addiction raging across North America and Brandon's uh, recovery. They are with us for the full two hours. We'll hear their uh, story, and then in the second hour, I'll open up the phones, and I'm hoping to hear from you if you believe you were healed by a miracle or some supernatural intervention. I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, Before that, let me quickly introduce the boys in the band on the flying V. Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. Ian, tell the good listeners about your uh, your latest album. Uh, the Grease Marks on Wild Records. The Grease Marks, Wild Records. Yes, sir. And they can order that through the website? Yeah, greasemarks.com. There you go. Go out and grab a copy. Grab two. <laughs> Christmas <laughs> is coming. All right. Uh, now, on the uh, Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, oh, Albert. Albert Vinzel is missing. Does anyone know where Albert is? Is he okay? I hope he's okay. Very mysterious, Albert is. Very secretive. He could be a Russian spy. What do you think? <laughs> Occasionally, I've caught Albert talking into his shoe. So, there's something going on there. Anyway, we miss Albert, and I'm sure he'll be back uh, shortly. Uh, finally, on the Hammond B3, my YouTube live stream producer, Ryan White... Uh, we are, incidentally, the live YouTube stream is uh, down. We're having some internet issues in studio. We, are, but the, we are recording for the uh, the YouTube channel, so this program will be available on the YouTube channel shortly. We're just not live streaming it. Uh, and um, in fact, what we'll be doing is when I host the program from my home studio, which I'll be doing from time to time, we will be doing the live stream from home. In fact, next week I'll be hosting from home. Uh, so please t- uh, take a moment, check out the YouTube channel if you haven't already done so, and hit that sub button. We have quickly shot up to uh, 11,000 subscribers, and we seem to be gaining some traction. Our recent show, in fact, on national parks and underground bases with Mary Joyce from a few weeks back, has close to 60,000 views. 60,000. So let's keep it rolling, please. Uh, Brandon Henderson was shooting 30 Roxy's a day, up to 70 milligrams. He recalls overdosing on multiple occasions, coming to and realizing his legs were numb and blue. I'm convinced I killed myself during that time and Jesus resurrected me, based on praying parents and prophecy, Brandon says. So, how did a pastor's son who was raised in church and believed in Jesus end up as a statistic? Part of an epidemic, eating away at the land of the free. Well, he's here to tell this remarkable story of supernatural healing. Brandon is a pastor's son and recovered addict of more than 15 years. In 2010, he was arrested by U.S. Marshals and faced a 15-year prison sentence. His life spiraled out of control until, by God's grace and mercy, he landed in a Christian recovery program a few years later. Today, he is completely sober and is a devoted husband and father. Brandon's heart is to bring hope to the hopeless, and his testimony is featured in the documentary Hope Has a Name, 
And uh, that story is also covered in Charisma magazine. An astute businessman, he's worked in management for a Fortune 500 company as well as a real estate investor. Currently, he serves as the worship leader and inner healing pastor at Salt Life Church on Merritt Island, Florida. He's also an itinerant speaker. Brandon, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, thank you, Richard. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, Lisa Henderson is Brandon's mom. She's a dynamic, candid, inspirational Christian woman speaker, minister, author, and filmmaker. Her transparency and straightforward approach, coupled with prophetic insight, places her in great demand for conferences and churches. Lisa and her husband, Ken, are revivalists who pastor Salt Lake or Salt Life Church on Merritt Island, Florida, where they are also the founders of Cornerstone School of Supernatural Ministry. Lisa, welcome to you. How are you? Do we have Lisa there? Richard, we have some technical difficulties. She's getting her phone adjusted. Oh, all right. No worries. Well, I was going to start with you, Brandon. So we always assume, of course, that you know this, the uh, the children of pastors are going to lead, you know lead the straight and narrow life. But how did it how did it begin with you? Was there an injury that that caused you to start taking some sort of a painkiller? How did you get started down this downward spiral? Yeah, there was an injury. Um, that that kind of increased it. My drug abuse actually started early on, though, uh, in my teenage years with with uh, just trial and stuff, uh, basically like using pot and seeing what that led to. Um, that didn't get real serious though until I got into a bad car accident in 2008 and uh, injured my back and went to a pain management facility for uh, chronic back uh, pain, and they immediately pre- uh, prescribed me 240 30 milligram oxycodone a day. And within about a month, I noticed that I started becoming physically dependent on those. And so, what are Roxy's, by the way? Is that oxycodone? It's oxycodone, yep. Okay. And you were taking, did you say, up to 70 milligrams a day? I don't know. That, that's a lot? No, it was actually it's quite a bit higher than that at the end. Um, the, the pills were 30 milligrams a piece. And at the end of my addiction, there was a couple of days that I had did up to 70 pills in a day. 70. Those were the times when I actually was... Uh, purposefully trying to end my life. Ah, so you were trying to kill yourself. Yeah, and, and what happened was um, after years of being on oxycodone and trying to come off of it on my own, I tried several times to quit, and the withdrawals would get so bad I'd be sick, and you know, dope sick for two weeks in a row. Uh, when you're sick like that, throwing up, and you can't, can't sleep, you get to this point where you just feel hopeless. And so I had to have pills just to live a normal life, uh, which I knew was not normal. So I felt hopeless, and I thought, well, the easy way out is just to overdose. And so, yeah, that's what I did. And, and how old were you at that time? Uh, at the end of my addiction, it was 27. So it got really bad from the ages of about 24 to 27. And for that three years of hell that you were living, were three you... Three years of absolute hell, yeah. Were you, were you gainfully employed? Were you in a relationship? When it first started, I was employed. Uh, quickly, I lost my employment because the addiction, you know, became obvious to everybody at my at my job. And uh, you know, they encouraged me to go in and get help. At that time, I wasn't ready to do it. I kept feeling like I could quit on my own, and so I chose not to to uh, do that. The more I tried to quit, though, and the more I felt hopeless, the more that uh, I kind of embraced the drug lifestyle and just started using more and more. And uh, some of my friends were selling hard part of their prescription in order to sustain their habits. So I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I started selling my pills so that I could then provide for myself and my family 
while sustaining my habit. And of course, this is a terrible idea. Uh, let me let me bring your mom in here, uh, Lisa. Uh, at, yes. At what at what point did you find out that your son? Uh, was... At what point did I find out? Yes. I, yeah, I think we met him. I knew that he had um, a drug issue. I didn't realize to what degree or how bad it had spiraled out of control. Um, he was living in a, a different town at the time. Um, I knew that when we were seeing him that um, he was altered. Um, I didn't realize that it had gone from prescription medication uh, to what it had. And we were at a Cracker Barrel having breakfast with him, his dad and I. And um, he told us that morning that he had started shooting up. Shooting and up. So this was about maybe. Of course, at that time, my arms had track marks all over them. Yeah, um, that was probably maybe a year and a half into his addiction. Now, I, I guess I skipped over that part with you, Brandon. So you were at, at what point? You started taking heroin. At what point did I start taking heroin? Yes. That wasn't quite until quite a while after that. Um, it, be, it became harder and harder to get prescription drugs, uh, at least at the level that I was needing to take them to sustain my habit. And uh, somewhere, I don't know, about a year after this Cracker Barrel uh, meeting, I was trying to get clean, so I called my mom and dad. Uh, it was after I lost my job. You know, I kind of was, like, wanting to get free but didn't know how. So uh, I called them and said, hey, I'm going to move back to Jacksonville where they were, try and get a support group going and, and come off. So I moved back to Jacksonville to get close to them. The addiction didn't slow down. It only got worse as I got there uh, because I got home and I still realized, you know, I'm out of control. I can't quit this. I felt completely hopeless. Started making some friends, uh, some new friends that weren't so good. Um, and they said, hey, you know, why don't you try this? It's cheaper. I got it now. You know, and what happened was I was sick when I started. And when you're sick to that degree, you'll do just about anything to make that feeling go away. And so I tried it, and, you know, when I did, the, the withdrawal stopped. And so, you know, it was Katie barred the door after that, off to the races. Right. Uh, and and, and is, that, is that fairly common, that, that people that are become addicted to prescribed opioids, oxycodone or, or a Percocet, or Percocet they can, they're no longer getting the dosage they require from their doctor, uh, and so they switch to the cheaper heroin. That's pretty well the way it plays out, I guess. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Lisa and Brandon Henderson are here with a, a remarkable and harrowing story of opioid addiction and supernatural recovery. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Listen to these disturbing statistics, if you don't already know the, uh, the litany of woe here. In a 2015 report, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration stated that overdose deaths, particularly from prescription drugs and heroin, have reached epidemic levels. Nearly half of all opioid overdose deaths in 2016 involved prescription opioids. From 1999 to 2008, Overdose death, overdose death rates, sales and substance abuse treatment and submissions or admissions related to opioid pain relievers all increased substantially. By 2015, there were more than 50,000 annual deaths from drug overdose, causing more deaths than either car, accidents or guns. 
Drug overdoses have since become the leading cause of death of Americans under 50, with two-thirds of those deaths from opioids. In 2016, the crisis decreased overall life expectancy of Americans for the second consecutive year. In 2016, over 64,000 Americans died from overdoses, 21% more than the almost 53,000 in 2015. In Canada, half the overdoses were accidental, while a third were intentional. The remainder were unknown. All right, we are talking about the uh, opioid epidemic or opioid uh, crisis, the rapid increase in the use of prescription and non-prescription opioid drugs in the United States and Canada, which really began in the late 90s and continuing through the next uh, two decades. And, uh, of course, opioids... Uh, are, are a diverse class of moderately strong painkillers. We're talking uh, oxycodone, commonly sold under the trade names of Oxycontin and Percocet, uh, Vicodin, uh, and a very strong painkiller, fentanyl, of course, which is synthesized to resemble other opiates, such as uh, opium-derived morphine and heroin. Uh, Brandon Hen- Henderson is here. He was hopelessly addicted to uh, opioids, moved on to heroin, and uh, is here to tell us about his remarkable supernatural recovery. This story is featured in a documentary. We'll talk about that momentarily. It's called Hope Has a Name. Joining Brandon on the line is his mother, Lisa Henderson. And uh, Lisa and, and her husband, Ken, are pastors in Florida. Uh, Lisa, I mean, obviously, nope, this is a parent's worst nightmare. Um, I mean, when you found out that your son, you know, raised in the church, was using heroin... How did you feel? Um, obviously terrified um, because I realized, you know, how bad it was. You know, no, no parent likes to imagine their child sticking a needle in their arm and shooting drugs up. Um, of course, then there's the, the feeling of, of blame. You know, what did I do wrong? Where did we go wrong? Um, how did he get to this point? Um, what can I do to fix this? Um, there's so many uh, stages of, that you go through, anger, grief, I'm, uh, panic, just, you know, terror, um, and then you cycle back through. It, it's just really a horrible nightmare. And, uh, Brandon, you were, you were raised in the church. I mean, were you, did you consider yourself a, uh, a devout Christian when, when you started taking drugs, or had you fallen away from, uh, from the faith? What happened? I think falling away would be an accurate description. Uh, yeah, I was raised in church uh, at a very early age. I had faith in God and built a relationship with God. Um, as I progressed through uh, preteen years and the teenage years, a lot of things happened in my life that caused me to question my faith in God. You know, uh, when something bad happens, a lot of times we often ask, well, "How could God allow that to happen if there is a God?" And so those questions began to bubble up in my mind. And um, because of the pain and hurt that I had from emotional wounds in my life, you know, I started looking in different places to fulfill uh, the need that I had for God because I turned away from him out of bitterness. And I think that that really kind of led me into the drug addiction, um, you know, long before I ever got into the car accident. That was kind of just a tipping point for me. Um, it was the emotional wounds, those underlying issues that actually drove me further into addiction once that was made available to me. There's a lot of different things that, that tie together as to why somebody will be addicted. Um, 
for instance, opiates, they're not designed for a long-term pain management situation like I was having to deal with with my back injury. They were designed for something very short-term. You take somebody and you put them on it long-term, the way the drug is designed, it actually takes more of it every time to cover your pain because your tolerance continues to grow, and your body becomes dependent on it. So you take that and you add it into the mix of this kid who's got all these emotional wounds, and it's just a recipe for disaster. So are you suggesting that even had you not been in the car accident and started taking oxycodone, you may have become addicted to opiates another way? Uh, not, not necessarily opiates. I don't think that opiates would have been the issue. Um, but I was hurting and, you know, it might have been eating too much. I might have become addicted to, uh, you know, medicating that alcohol. Um, you know, there's a number of different things that we turn to to medicate our feelings. Uh, it just so happens that because I had a car accident, I had an excuse or reason, uh, to use that and that was introduced to me. First time that I took pain medicine and all the back pain was gone, all the emotional pain was gone at the same time. I was like, wow, this is amazing. It rocked my world. Uh, little did I know the damage it was going to cause. Lisa, I don't know if you can answer this, but I mean, um, you know, you and your husband are pastors. You raised your son in the church, and yet he's standing, sitting before you at a Cracker Barrel restaurant, and you realize he's addicted to heroin. Is that I mean, is there an added strain being a being a pastor, knowing that you raised your son in the church and you, you're you're ministering to other people, and your son is a heroin addict? Does that double the the pain and the shame and the? Absolutely, yes, it does. Um, there's there's a lot of pressure with that when you realize you're you know ministering to other people, you're preaching the gospel, um, you're you know trying to help them get their lives. Straight, um, get healing to their lives, and then you have, you know, your child who you love more than life, who has this addiction, um, and yeah, there's a, a lot of shame and um, just pressure that comes with that. And then the, you know, for a while, a long while, you know, we weren't letting people know the degree that his addiction was, and not then just out of shame, but to protect him, and so that he, we felt like that he was going to one day come through this, and we wanted him to be able to hold his head up and not feel like everybody in the world knew, you know, what he was doing. Um, and then you get to a point that you're so desperate for help that at that point, then it really doesn't matter. Who knows? You just want people praying and, and any help you can get. Uh, Brandon, can you take us to the, the day when you decided that you it would just be better to, just to slip away to take an overdose? The day when I decided that it would be better to do that, yeah, I, I can do that. Um, this was okay. So in 2010, I was arrested by U.S. Marshals uh, for selling oxycodone, and um, spent some time in jail. While I was in jail, I got clean, uh, but it was a very short amount of time. Come out of jail, and because I hadn't really dealt with any of the issues that was driving me to medicate myself at that point. Uh, and I had some back pain still. It was very easy for me to fall back into it, so I went back into using drugs. Um, while I was clean, though, my wife became pregnant with my oldest daughter, Leva. And um, while she was pregnant it was when I went back into using drugs. It was a very short period that I was clean. Um, after my daughter was born, and I was looking at myself in the mirror, and I was seeing this guy who I felt was completely hopeless, I look at my wife and my daughter and I just thought, you know, they're going to be better off without this in their life. So the easy thing for her to do, because Julie wouldn't leave me, 
was be for me to die, and then maybe she could find somebody who would be more equipped to raise my daughter. And so that was the thought that I had. I can't do it alone. I can't quit. It's just not working. I'll just, you know, do everybody a favor and end it. And and so what did you, you what did you take? Um, how many pills did you take? Well, there's multiple times that I shot up up to 70 pills in a day. Uh, so I was crushing up about 10, 30 milligram oxycodones. Uh, and then drawing them up in a syringe and shooting up. You know, this is on top of taking three or four, uh, two milligrams annex and the, the street on the street that's called a bar. So I take two or three bars and then shoot up 10 oxycodones. So I do that several times in a row because the syringe only holds so much at one time until I would just fall over, uh, pass out completely dead. Come to several hours later, uh, completely cold and numb. I'm talking blue from the waist down. And, you know, I'm convinced that I did kill myself during that time. When I was in my addiction, my parents was, every time my dad would call me, he'd pick up the phone and he'd call me a man of God. He'd say, hey, man of God, how you doing? And every time he did that, I'd be like, inside, internally, I was frustrated because something inside of me wanted to be a man of God, but I couldn't see that as any possibility because I felt completely hopeless. So I'd be frustrated and angry, not really at him, but angry at the situation that he was calling me a man of God. And what he was doing was he was actually prophesying over me, and he was calling forth life. And he would and he would he would prophesy this exactly when he prayed, say, "You will live and not die. You will stand and declare the works of the Lord." And so when I kill myself, I believe that God actually raised me up based on His prophecy. God was honoring His prophecy in the prayers. God wasn't done with me yet. He wasn't done with my story yet. So He brings me back. I can actually remember when I would shoot up and die. Like, I could see myself and feel myself after I was completely unconscious, slipping. Like, I mean, slipping through darkness and being pulled fast. And then all of a sudden, something would jerk me right back to my body. And I'd come to. So, is that what you would, was that a near-death experience? I mean, did you, did you have some? I don't think it was, I don't think it was a near-death experience. I think it was a death experience. A death, you think you were clinically dead? Yes. Do you have any idea how, how many hours you were out? You were gone? A couple. A couple hours. You were dead for a couple hours? Yes. Who I'm found you? Cold. I'm talking no circulation, blue legs. Um, and so what, what, and here's the, the, the crazy part. God would snatch me back into my body, and I remember waking up, and I almost felt disappointed, like, oh, man, I was almost through this, and now I'm back. When God brought me back two or three times, and I was like, God, that's if that's not the way out, you got to help me get out of this somehow because I can't keep doing this anymore. And so that's when I began to really cry out for help to the Lord. And so uh, God sent a rescue for me, but it was by the way of the police. Um, I was on probation at this point, uh, you know, for for the the cell that I had told you about earlier. And um, they kept. I was actually supposed to be on house arrest. I'd slip out the back door and be selling drugs and buying drugs and doing all kind of craziness. They couldn't never quite catch me um, until finally my wife just had had enough. Like she was wanting, she could see how close I was to either getting killed by somebody or killing myself. And she was just like, she was willing to do anything. So she turned me into my probation officer and they showed up at my house with three cops and uh, cuffed me. They went through the house searching everything. They didn't find anything, but they had enough evidence based on what she told them to violate me and so they told me they presented it to me well during that time we had been talking to this place called Dunklin about going into their their uh, regeneration program which is in Okeechobee Florida it's a Christian regeneration program 
I was scared to go down there because I knew I'd have to face my issues. But at the same time, I was ready. Um, not quite ready enough to make the decision on my own. But when the cops came and they were, you know, saying, all right, you're going to go to prison now. I was like, listen, I've been talking to this place called Dunklin. And uh, if you guys would give me a chance to go there, I'll go there. I'll get my life straight. So probation officer agreed to let me go to Dunklin to, to get everything back together. Uh, I think she did that just so she'd know where I was while she went through the legal process because I was down at Dunklin for a month. And then uh, while I was there, she went ahead and violated me and hit me with 13 violations. And so they came and took me out of Dunklin, and then I went to jail. Uh, at this point, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to prison because I had a pretty thick uh, book, uh, a pretty thick record. And the judge told me the last time that I was in front of you, I promise you the next time you come in front of me for any violation, because I'd already been violated before, you're going straight to prison. So, you know, that's the conversation I was having on the phone with my mom. And I have to have her take her part of that and her side of the story. Um, right. So, really, so yeah. you you got to... Uh, yeah, jump in here, Lisa, and tell me. So yeah. this well, is. Just, um, yeah, he's. We finally got into this place that that I'd been begging him to go to for a couple of years, and as he said, he wasn't ready. So, you know, he's finally there. We've seen uh, improvement even in four weeks, and then he gets violated, and um, you know, taken back up to Benel, uh, um, where he was going to face this judge again. And he's on the phone with me. He said, Mom, I've been talking to the uh, public defender. It's not looking good. And I want you to prepare yourself that I'm probably going away. And I would just, you know, I'd tell him, I said, I can't hear that. I, I, I can't hear that. I don't believe that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm holding on to the promises God gave me concerning you. And I believe you're coming out of this. I cannot hear you tell me you're going away. I can't, I can't do it. I can't listen to that. How many years was he facing potentially? Fifteen. Fifteen years. Yes. Wow. Okay. So, what happens next? How did you well, get out of that? Well, we we continued to um, to pray, and um, and I know that that. Hold on. Before, before she tells you this part, uh, what happened? Well, this was a turning point for me in my life. I came face to face with everything I was afraid of. Um, and a lot of resentment towards God and, and man. And while I was in jail, you know, I just, I told God, I said, God, I surrender. I totally surrender to you. I said, I know that I'm going to prison. Or maybe not, you know, if you have grace. I said, but either way, you know, I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm done running and trying to do it on my own. Lord, take the wheel. Help, help me through this, and I will serve you, and I'll tell your story everywhere I go. All right, Brandon, I've got to jump in. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and return to this amazing story of addiction and recovery, supernatural recovery. At the top of the, uh, the hour, we'll open up the phone lines and take questions, comments, and hopefully your miracle stories. Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Lisa Henderson is a revivalist pastor who has first-hand experience with the opioid epidemic ravaging across North America. Her son, Brandon, became a hopeless addict to heroin and opioids. They reached out to God through the power of prayer and are now on the road to recovery. 
Uh, Brandon, uh, you were telling us, uh, okay, so you're facing 15 years, and while in prison, you basically just surrendered uh, and said, whether I'm going to be here in jail for the next 15 years or whether through some miracle I escape a prison sentence, I am done with this life, and you were devoting yourself to God. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I got to tell you that in that moment, I didn't know what was going to happen, um, but I did feel a sense of peace come over me. Uh, it, it was like the presence of the Holy Spirit settled on me, and I was okay at that moment with whatever future I had faced or I had to face. And so, uh, you know, and I remember sharing that with my mom, and I think this is this is important for you to hear her part of the story before we go any further. All right, Lisa. Yes. Yeah. So, what's happening? With with you, your husband, uh, it's Ken. Um, your husband also a pastor. Yes, um, um, my husband and I. We just continue to, you know, turn to God and to pray and ask God for mercy for Brandon. And we realized, um, you know, how bad his addiction was. We realized he'd done some pretty, pretty bad stuff. Stuff deserving um, prison. You know, we know that. But we asked God for mercy. We believed from the time he was a child, God had a plan for his life. And when he got taken out of the regeneration program at Dunklin and um, arrested, that day uh, the Lord took me to Scripture um, in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. And a lot of people are very familiar with that Scripture as far as 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you and prosper you, to give you a future. And I read that, and I felt like the Lord was speaking to me, that I was hearing from him. But then I heard him, I felt like I heard him say, read farther. And I read down to verse 14 and it said, and to bring you back from the place I have taken you. And I felt like he was trying to tell me that, that though Brandon had been taken out of Jacqueline and to prison, that he would take him back from prison, back to that program, and he would actually get free. So I just continued to um, stand on that. My husband is such a man of faith and a um, man of God. And he just continued to decree and declare over Brandon that he would do the things God had called him to do and he would serve the Lord and turn from the drugs and, and the things, everything else that that encompassed, which was a lot. Um, so we continue to stand on that. And then um, I don't know how spiritual you, you know you want me to get or that your viewers, not your viewers or listeners, um, can actually accept that during that time, during a time of just desperation, crying out to God, believe in God for his promise, I had what I would call a vision um, of Brandon in court um, with the judge. I, I saw the, the um, state's attorney uh, call the judge aside in my vision, and I, you know, I saw the judge shaking his head, and then I heard him say in the vision, I don't know why I'm doing this, but. Hmm. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And then I saw Brandon standing in court, and I saw Jesus standing behind him with his hand on his shoulder, and like the Lord was trying to assure me, he's got this, he's with him, he's going to be okay. And um, the day we went to court, and we were all really nervous or praying because we knew this is the judge. He was tough, um, and it didn't seem like he was in a very good mood that day, um, just watching him with people coming in before Brandon. And we knew what he said about sending him away. But all of a sudden, the, the state's attorney said, Your Honor, may I see you to the side? And I was like, what? And he pulled him to the side. And he went left the, the bench. And they're over there talking with the, um, 
the uh, public defender, and the judge begins shaking his head. He's looking at Brandon's file, which is about the size of a very large uh, phone book, very thick. And he's shaking his head, and I'm remembering this vision. And then all of a sudden, he comes back to the bench, and he says these words. He says, I do not know why I'm saying this, but. Wow. And he gives the order for Brandon to go back to Dunklin. Young man, you're going to go back there, and you're going to finish the program. And if you don't finish it, you immediately will begin serving your sentence. So you want to pick up two rings? He actually sentenced me to prison right then. He gave me a seven-year sentence. Yeah. And then he suspended it in lieu of me going back to Dunklin, completing the program, completing my probation and everything that had happened. Exactly as your mother had seen it in this vision. Yes, exactly. Now, here, here's the really cool part. When I went into court and, you know, I'm standing there cuffed in my orange suit, and I know that I'm facing a very long prison sentence. Now, in my heart of hearts, I don't want to go to prison. I want to get out and be with my family because I had seen a little glimmer of hope while I was at Dunkin' of what clean life would be like for me and what God could do in my life based on different men that I've seen who went through the program and had success and what God did in their lives, uh, supernatural stuff that would just blow your mind. And so I wanted that for me. So I'm in, in there facing this prison sentence. And for the first time I'd ever been in front of the judge, my heart was pounding harder than ever before. I mean, my carotid artery, you could see it thumping. It was, it was just out of control. And I felt something put their hand on my shoulder and say, I've got this. And immediately my heart rate dropped. Immediately peace came over. That was Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit that she saw in the vision putting his hand on my shoulder. And, and the vision came true. Had your mother shared that vision with you prior? No. I don't think so, no. Um, I, I didn't. We had very limited um, ability to talk. You know, it costs money when you're in jail to talk over the phone. And, and so every phone call is very, um, not very long. Um, I got to see him only a couple times through um, the glass. And every time we did see him, his dad or I, we would encourage him. And continued to tell him, because every time he would see us, he would try to prepare me for um, what looked like was going to be prison time for him. And I would just try to encourage him. And I just held on to that that vision in my heart and believing that he was not going to get sent away. All right, Lisa, I've got to jump in here again. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, delve more into this remarkable story of supernatural healing on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Elisa Henderson and her son Brandon Henderson stay with us and into the next hour when we'll open up the phone lines and take your questions, comments, and hopefully your stories of uh, supernatural healings, miracles, either one that has happened to you personally or one that you've witnessed. Uh, just a, a quick side note I wanted to mention. Saturday, October the 20th, I will be hosting a, a special e, uh, presentation with David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue here in Toronto, 40 Donlins Avenue. That's Saturday, October the 20th. I will be hosting and David John Oates will be presenting his amazing reversals, reverse speech, uh, and will be demonstrating how they can solve the JFK assassination. That's right. He will attempt to solve the JFK assassination using reverse speech. That's Saturday, October 20th, Greek 
of the Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue in Toronto, right across from the Donlin subway station. And that's uh, 2 to 5 p.m. on the 20th, 2 to 5 p.m. Tickets are $15 at the door. More information, Crime and Trauma Scene uh, Cleaners. CrimeScenecleaners.ca is the website. CrimeScenecleaners.ca All right, uh, so... Let's see now. Where were we? Uh, Lisa, you were, uh, you were telling us about this, uh, incredible vision you had, uh, where the judge who was, you were, was expected to sentence your son Brandon to a lengthy prison sentence. In this vision, uh, he said, he started shaking his head and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but, and then in the, uh, during the actual sentencing, it, it played out exactly that way. This hardened, judge shook his head and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but... And he sent your son back to uh, Dunklin. Is that the name of yes. it? Dunklin? Yes. Dunklin uh, Memorial, yes. The Addiction, uh, the addiction uh, Recovery Center. Yes. And uh, that's okay. So, back you went, Brandon. And how long were you at uh, Dunklin this time? One year. One year. That's a long stretch. Uh, and is that how long it typically takes to, to for re- full recovery? Uh, yes, and actually we've done a study that it shows that most especially for people on opiates that it takes about a year for their brain to heal. And they've done MRIs and scans of brains that have been on opiates, and it looks like, um, looking at the brain, that it looks like there's holes all in the brain. And um, it's just, the, you know, things aren't firing correctly, so it takes a full year for that to heal. So if you couple that with um, dealing with any emotional issues, um, childhood traumas, hurts, things that um, are driving the addiction, that long period of time is really needed. That's an. Exp- I would imagine that would be a fairly expensive <laughs> treatment. I mean, can, can you share how long, how much that would cost? Well, uh, Dunklin's an amazing place because it is a Christian regeneration program. It is a ministry. Um, they do make you pay your way through it, but if you're serious about getting help, and believe me, they're going to find out in the interview if you're ser- serious. Uh, I should say interviews because there's multiple interviews before you can get in. Um, they will let you do a payment plan and I think at the time that I went through they charged me $4,500 that's it that's it for the whole year for the whole year other places want $30,000 for 30 days yeah. So and don't have as good a results what happens at Dunklin you mentioned that you got a glimpse of some some pretty supernatural things Brandon can you share some of those with me well uh, just seeing men who came from a background like I had come from walking around with their families being made whole again was something that I thought was supernatural. My mom, whenever I was in the, the real heart of my addiction, she would she would come over and just like my dad, she would call me a man of God and, and begin to you know speak life over me and positive things to me. And I would get frustrated and I told her, you need to give that up. I say, opiate addicts don't quit, they die. And it you know, I wasn't just trying to be negative, but I truly believed that and that's what I've seen and it's just evidence says that's what happens typically. Uh, so to go from that mindset to now I'm at this place where I see men who came from just as bad of abuse as I had come from that are living these healthy whole lives now 
and day to day doing good, I thought that was pretty supernatural in and of itself. Right. What Dunklin does is uh, their their whole program. It's called a regeneration program. It's not a rehab. To rehabilitate somebody is to take somebody from where they're at now back to a previous state. To regenerate somebody is to make them all over a new person. The Bible says to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And if you look at psychology, the mind has this really amazing thing called plasticity, where you can actually change the way that you think and change the connections in your mind and actually renew your mind. So science backs up the Bible on this. What they do at Dunklin is called inner healing. They deal with a lot of the underlying issues of why you use drugs and the attitudes that led to it and the past hurts and pains that you cover up with whatever your uh, poison is. Mine was opiates, others was pornography, others was alcohol. Some people were there because of eating, you know, it's different things. But they deal with the underlying issues of what's driving you to do this, what's causing the behavior. And once you begin to open up that stuff, and let God heal that, that's where the supernatural transformation takes place because he goes in and heals those past wounds and those hurts, and he brings about forgiveness in your life in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Now, do you have to be a Christian to be admitted? No. But there's, no. A, there's obviously there's a great deal of, uh, of, uh, of prayer. Most, most men who are hooked on drugs aren't Christians. Uh, I, would, you know, I would venture to say that most of them are not. But they soon become Christians, or do they? Yes. Do they? Yeah, because there's it's a lot not, of prayer going on. You can't force nobody to become a Christian. No, but there's a lot of prayer going on there. I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's 100% faith based. They'll let you know that up front, you know. And so the men usually make a choice right at the beginning whether or not they wanted to see. You know, a lot of guys are going there skeptical, and uh, you know. They want to do it anyways because they really don't have any other choices. If you end up in Dunkin', it's because there's nothing else for you. Um, There's no other way, no other option, because it's a very hard program to go through. It's a very hard program to get into. It's hard to get into uh, because they know that a lot of people will give up. What's hard about it is, is when you start dealing with the emotional wounds and stuff that happened to you in your past, that's tough. You start talking about things that happen in people's childhood, they don't want to go there. They'd rather not talk about it. They'd rather cover it up and keep doing stuff. So they make it very hard to get in. So these men come into the program skeptical, but uh, they quickly see, like I did, like God's presence is there, and you see healing taking place. And here's something that you have to experience to understand. The minute that I stepped onto that camp, I could feel the presence of God. I could feel peace in the air. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, and he said, you're home. And he began to reassure me that this is going to be okay. Did you witness now, a lot of real they, hard, a lot of real hard cases, hardened individuals uh, who previously had no, no faith, no connection to God, be transformed, yeah. rejuvenated? Yes. If, if, if you were to look them up, I mean, we could do interview after interview of men who's been through that program who came in with absolutely no faith. Um, that God completely turned their lives around and gave them faith and began to speak to them. And then they began to have a relationship with God where they actually are hearing from God in their own life and uh, setting them completely free. And these men, when you meet them on the street today, you know, I get this all the time. People say, I just can't imagine you being an opiate addict because of the way I look. I have a nice haircut. I do have some tattoos, but I present myself well. 
they have no idea just looking at me that I used to kick doors in so I could get opiates, you know. Uh, and that's what these other men are like. These hardened criminals, when you meet them on the street today, their life is so transformed that it's hard a lot of times for other people to look at them and say, they can't connect those dots. It's hard to reconcile. That is how awesome God is. That he takes something that was so absolutely one way and he completely turns it around and makes it something beautiful. How many How many of these rejuvenation uh, centers are there? Just the one? No, they have several of them. Uh, actually, I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, up in Georgia who started one called Evans Memorial Camp, which is a branch off of Dunklin. A guy named Rick Wagner went through the program, sort of the camp up in Georgia. There's other camps. Uh, the Eagle's Nest, I think, is in Virginia, and uh, there's several of them throughout the country. There's one in Titusville. Uh, what's that called? Do you think these would be effective in prison? Absolutely. 100%. See, the thing about prison is we send people away, you get them off of drugs, but you don't deal with any of the issues that drove the men to do the things that they were doing. And then they don't receive healing, and they don't forgive, and they walk out of prison a lot of times more jacked up than they went in. And so our system is broken. We actually, my husband and I, um, have a prison ministry, and we actually took the inner healing portion that Brandon went through down at Dunklin, took the material, we went through inner healing ourselves um, so that we could know how to do that and, you know, to take care of any issues that we had. And we took it into the women's prison um, over in Hernando County. And we did two or three different rounds for these women. Um, and most of these women were coming to us at the end of the 12-week session saying, I had spent years in counseling, thousands of dollars, and have gotten more in 12 weeks from what you guys have shown us and talked to us about than I did spending all that money and all that time. Remarkable. Remarkable. Uh, we are uh, just about to the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll uh, keep the two of you, and uh, I want to hear about the uh, the documentary, Hope Has a Name. Great. And uh, we'll let people know how they can see that, and we'll also open up the phone lines. 